Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as senior minister here at Knox, and I want to have my word of welcome to what Sam said at the beginning, or close to the beginning. So I have a question for you this morning. What comes to mind when I say the word home? What do you picture? What, where do you see yourself? Who are you with when I invite you to reflect on what home means for you? Where can you really be at home? As my family and I have moved over recent months from Guelph to Toronto, this question has been on my mind. I started my new job here at Knox in the summer, but we only really moved back to the city a week and a half ago. I was born here, grew up here, lived mostly in four places here over 37 years. Now we're in number five, but it's not home yet. It still feels a little strange, like we don't quite belong there. My father once told me that he had lived in 23 different places by the time he graduated from high school. He was a missionary kid, half Scottish, half American, who grew up in China and became Canadian and never really knew where he fit in. I think he was partly telling me that I'd had it pretty good, that things had been pretty stable, steady. More and more people in our city are insecure in their housing or don't have any. We know this. Perhaps some of you here this morning are aware, are familiar with that. Or maybe you're in a season of transition, like we are as a family, moving from one place to another or needing to find a new place to live. Or perhaps you're away from home and you miss all the things that mean so much to you, those things you pictured, you saw in your mind when I said the word home. Whatever our circumstances, all of us long for home. I think the end of that last hymn we sang, the longing desire of our hearts. Ultimately, it's a longing to be home. Among people who love us, safe, secure. That longing could be a memory from the past for you. A place, a season, a loved one, or more than one. We may be restless because we're searching for something better. We might feel the same way because we've given up on the hope of that. Well, if you can relate to that feeling of restlessness, if you long for a home where you can really rest from your worries and your concerns, then this passage we've read from Isaiah 40 is for you. It pictures the homecoming of Israel from exile, her hard service completed, in it, we see, first of all, the advent of the king, right? We're talking about advent. We're in that season now. The arrival of the king is imminent. Secondly, we see the hope of his kingdom. And third, we hear his invitation to his people, to us. So first, the advent of the king. As you've heard already today, the word advent means simply arrival. And so we hear in this passage a voice calling, 
Prepare the way for the Lord. He's about to arrive. The voice says, make way, clear a path. We know what that looks like at Knox. Multiple times a year, we have to make way. The police stop traffic. They set up barriers, and we can't get through. Sometimes it's a marathon that's coming, but last Sunday, it was Santa Claus. When I was a student in Beijing, I remember that a foreign state, head of state came on official business to the city, and they shut the whole place down so that he could whip through from the airport to the Great Hall of the People in Tiananmen Square. Everyone had to stop for one important person. Isaiah here in chapter 40 announces the arrival of something greater than the world has ever seen because it doesn't just stop traffic. No, it's raising up mountains. It's raising up valleys and bringing down mountains. At the time, anyone reading those words would have realized that that meant a king was coming because when a king or an emperor in that time went to a part of his territory for the first time, he didn't take the usual route that travelers would normally take. No, they actually built entirely new highways for the king. And of course, that was practical. It helped him get to his destination faster. But even more, it points to the meaning of kingship, its authority and its power for renewal. First, it was about the king's authority. Nothing should stand in the way of the king because everything and everyone serves him. When the true king comes, we are called to align ourselves with his reign, with his purposes, and not oppose his lordship in any way. Secondly, this geographical leveling that's portrayed in Isaiah 40 symbolizes the renewing power of the true king. Think for a second with me about what good leadership looks like. When I was a student at U of T, there were some professors who really stood out, and they stood out because they made an extra effort. They tried to get to know their students. They invited questions, and they took time. They were even willing to have a coffee with you. They were willing to sit down with you and show you how your paper could have been better. Or think of the leadership of a small group Bible study. Maybe you're part of one of our Knox home churches. I hope you are. When you meet with your group, there is a leader, or maybe there are two. And you recognize the leader when you participate in the life of the group. And so now that person has a specific role and an authority that comes with it. And if the leader has the assurance and the wisdom to lead the group well, to put its needs before his or her needs, the group will usually flourish. So whether you're in leadership as a parent, as a city councillor or a camp counselor, as a teacher, as a leader in your workplace or in your volunteer commitments, when authority is rightly exercised, it creates harmony it creates flourishing. Here, it's portrayed like a king coming to a dangerous wilderness, and suddenly the landscape is welcoming and hospitable. The king comes to a hostile desert, 
and he makes it safe for travelers. But Isaiah goes even farther. When human kings come, you build a bridge across the valley. Or in modern times, you might dig a tunnel through the mountain. But when this king comes, the valley is raised up. The mountain itself is brought low. This is no ordinary king. Isaiah is saying that the whole world is a wasteland. There's war, there's poverty, there's disease, there's suffering and death everywhere you look. And so we love to blame people for that. The bad kings, the bad politicians, prime ministers, premiers, mayors. But the Bible says that we are all complicit, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But when the true king, when the good king comes, there will be renewal and healing beyond what we could have imagined. And so the rich man in his penthouse high above the city will be brought low, and the homeless woman sleeping under the Gardner Expressway will be raised high. The order of things will be overturned, and we are invited into the coming of that kingdom to serve the true king. In verse 5, it says that when this king arrives, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. All people will see it together, which means that this king is the king of everything and everyone, not just one nation, not just one part of the world, not limited in that way. And if the whole world will see his glory, he must be coming from beyond the world. And so Isaiah points to the advent of a true king with authority over all people and even over the earth, over the mountains and the valleys. And he says that this king will restore what was lost, will heal what was broken, and will renew the earth. The king is coming, says Isaiah. And then we learn about what his kingdom looks like, what it will mean to us. We've opened this book of the Bible today at chapter 40, but if you were to turn back to the beginning of Isaiah, you would really grasp how good this news is. Because for the first 39 chapters, Isaiah was all about judgment and condemnation of God's people in their unfaithfulness. And then right at the end of chapter 39, God sends Isaiah to the king with the message that they are going to be defeated and carried off into exile in Babylon as its prisoners. And then you turn the page, and seemingly out of nowhere, here in chapter 40, you have an explosion of hope. The contrast between a king who could not live up to what his people needed, what the world needed, and the coming of the ultimate king. First, it talks about comfort for my people in verse 1. After all their unfaithfulness, after all the wrong they had done, God still calls them my people. He's still with them. They are his. And then in the next verse, there's a proclamation that her hard service has been completed because this prophecy looks ahead to Israel's homecoming, to the return from exile in Babylon. There's a prophetic vision here that doesn't move in linear fashion through the chronology. So as Israel is about to be sent into exile, the prophet Isaiah is already picturing 
her return from exile. And we learn that God has not abandoned his people. He's sending them away for a time, but he has not given up on them. And even more, there's hope because the sins of God's people have been paid. Verse 2 says, Israel has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What does that mean? It sounds like it might be referring to punishment. But no, it's actually saying that the Lord has paid twice over for the sins of his people. And so the reason the exile will not last long is because God has offered a payment for their sins and he doubled up on it. It's way more than he needed to pay. And this is the hope of the kingdom. When the king shows up, it's amazing. In verse 10, it says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. But he exerts his power in a way that no king ever had before. In verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs into his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them. Every empire in human history, from Egypt to Babylon, had used power to trample over others, to seize control, and to subjugate. And it didn't get any better after the time of Isaiah. And yet, instinctively, we have known all along that that was wrong. Nothing provokes outrage in us like a bully harming a vulnerable person. Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister of the UK, was in Toronto last week. You know, the reason he's a former Prime Minister is that during COVID lockdowns in 2020 and 2021, he and his staff held parties where they broke all the rules they themselves had established for other people in the UK. They call it Partygate. That's how it worked in the ancient world also. The rich and the powerful played by a completely different set of rules and everyone else was expected to bow down to them anyway, not to hold them to account, but to take it. It was survival of the fittest. The strong ate the weak. Now during COVID, we took it for granted that the elderly and the vulnerable in our society would get vaccines first. But that is not the way of the world. The way of the world is that the strong take what they can. It's the legacy of Christian faith that we turn first to the needs of the weak, the vulnerable. And that's the transformation. It can happen individually or on the level of the whole of society that comes with the arrival of a true king. A king like the king pictured here in Isaiah 40 who exerts his power on behalf of the weak who insists on justice for the least of these. And we see here that the warrior king, this powerful king, is a gentle shepherd. But what does it mean in verse 10 when it says his reward is with him? Why would God need a reward? And what could that be? If you read the whole chapter, the parts that we left out, it says that God calls out the stars. They belong to him. All the nations belong to him. He reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. So what treasure would he bring? Well, we had a clue earlier. What was God carrying close to his heart? It's his flock. It's us, his people. 
But how could the king who judges all injustice and evil, the king who insists on faithfulness and loyalty, how can he look at us and our track record and still love us? How can the all-powerful king be a shepherd and call us his reward? Only because he has paid twice for our sins. Where do you see the power of God and the loving kindness of God come together? You see it at Christmas, when love came down. When God says that he has paid twice for our sins, he's saying that he hasn't just done the basics. He hasn't just forgiven the wrong. He hasn't just canceled the debt. Though that would be good in itself. Isn't that something we all long for? Jesus went to the cross not to bring the balance to zero. He's given you double. It's so much more than we expected. He loves you so much that it not only erases the past, it not only restores the relationship, but it's a passport to a whole new beginning. It's a homecoming. He brings you right inside his favor. He sees you as his treasure, as his reward. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. But if you have been tempted to think of that as some kind of provisional deal that always leads to God following up with the question, well, what have you done for me lately? In other words, if you think you've been pardoned but not yet really fully accepted, you need to look again at the picture Scripture gives us of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. And we've just come through a series on the drama of Scripture, and as we gather every week for worship, Again and again, we hold that picture up. We want to see Jesus. For me, the story of the prodigal son is still one of the best ways to tell this story. The father who was rejected by his son, who was treated so poorly by him, doesn't just allow his son to come home. He waits and watches for him. And then he runs out to meet him, casting all dignity aside, and he embraces him. He doesn't let him in quietly through the back door. No, he throws this huge party to honor him and celebrate his return. In the same way, God sees you as his glittering prize. He rejoices in you. That is the hope of his kingdom. My daughter, Chloe, loves the TV show Loki. Season two came out this fall. And in episode four, Loki says something true for a change. He says, annihilating things is easy. Raising things from the ground is easy. Maybe it's easier if you're a Norse god, but... And then he goes on to say, trying to fix what is broken is so hard. Hope is hard. God's grace comes to us freely as a gift. But living out that hope requires daily commitment. It's the cost of discipleship. And maybe that's why this chapter ends with those verses that we love to read about soaring like eagles. But did you notice that we started to soar and then we were running and then we were walking? Wouldn't it be more natural that the progression begin with us walking and then running and then soaring? 
But no, I think the message there is that, yes, we soar to the heights as God comes into our life and gives us his peace, gives us his purpose. But we are led into a daily walk with him. We are led into the cost of discipleship. We are led into friendship with Jesus in the mundane things, the grind of our lives. We love to be comfortable over the holidays, right? We love to curl up on the couch with hot chocolate to surround ourselves with lights. We got a few this morning. To treat ourselves in various ways. But this Advent, as you reflect on the new and living way that Jesus has opened for us to come home to God, to the true King, let me invite you to stand outside in the cold for a while, to join the prodigal son at a distance and linger in that place of tension and confusion and regret about where our home is. Because Jesus always meets us in that place. He comes into our loneliness, into our restlessness, into our longing, and he gives us a hope like no other. And then he sends us out to share the good news of his coming with the world. We start on that high mountain. But if we want to follow Jesus into loving the city and serving the world, we will soon find ourselves in the dark valleys. The Holy Spirit prompts you to put yourself in the place of the one who is heartbroken, the one who is homeless, the one who is God-forsaken, because that is where you will always find Jesus. Only the Spirit can move you to think less of your own comfort and more of the comfort of someone else. Only the Spirit will lead you to decrease so that Christ can increase. Remember, We serve an all-powerful God, a king who is a shepherd, a king who came down in weakness, who left his rightful place of glory, who embraced exile, who paid double for our sins so that we could come home to God and have the hope of eternal life. Thanks be to God for the gift of his son. I want to invite you now to, to pray to reflect on two questions. First, have you put your hope in Jesus, the all-powerful king who is also a shepherd? Is that how you see him? And second, how could you live out his hope, which is your hope, in our city this December by making a way for someone who is far from home? Is there someone specific? Is there a name that the Holy Spirit may bring to mind for you, may bring close to your heart, someone for whom you could open a door? Would you pray now with me sincerely in the silence that God would lead you 